we still need a lot of knowledge and just try to understand what is the uh, the more like what is the basic nutrition of a dog and cat and then I go to the ecology of the animals and then try to understand how far are we away from that specific trait of the nutrition that we observe in, in, in nature that is changed in how we are feeding our dogs and cats in, in home and yeah then you come into all different types of questions A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm your host today, Dr. Kate Shoveler, and I'm here with Dr. Guido Bosch from Wageningen University and Research. Uh, before we get started, Guido, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about you um, in case they're not familiar with you and your work? Okay, thanks for the introduction, Kate. I'm uh, Guido Bosch. Uh, I'm working here in Wageningen, the Netherlands, a tiny country in Europe. I'm uh, specialized in uh, dog and cat nutrition. I have a PhD over here for the effects of nutrition on behavior in dogs. So I like to combine nutrition and behavior in my research. Uh, I also have an interest in ecology of animals, uh, methodologies, uh, feed processing technology. So it's quite broad in terms of uh, topics and also animal species. So I also go beyond uh, dogs and cats. So zoo animals and insects are also my uh, uh, on my plate, so to say. So a very unique comparative nutritionist because I think the majority of us um, who do work with multiple species tend to stay in the mammalian kingdom and you definitely have branched out a little bit into other kingdoms. Um, so congratulations for that because that's not, that's not easy uh, to do. Uh, I thought too, um, and mainly because I've spent the last year with you. So uh, for the listeners out there, I was on sabbatical at Wagnigan with with uh, Guido um, and his fellow animal nutritionists um, there. And it's also an outstanding university in terms of what's available to do research. So do you want to describe a little bit too what's available to the pet food industry and to the ingredient industry when we think about um, contacting you to maybe maybe sponsor a graduate student's um, program or to do research for that matter? What's available to uh, you and your colleagues? Okay, so yeah, on campus we have uh, different types of research uh, facilities. So very specific for uh, pet nutrition, we have cats over here, 34 cats. Uh, and the cats are trained for behavior research, but also nutrition research, so they are well behaved. Um, not uh, stressed, of course, they are well uh, habituated to all the, the procedures. Um, yeah, we can do digestibility work, more the standard type of work, uh, urine collections, uh, but we also look into uh, food motivation, for example, feeding patterns, and have developed some equipment to measure these kind of things. We also have laboratories to do just standard uh, proximate analysis, but also a little bit further, so fatty acid profiles, amino acid profiles, minerals, um, in vitro digestion um, simulation we can do. 
Uh, and also fermentation in vitro is something that we can uh, do on a quite large scale. So many uh, different types of treatments can be uh, evaluated at the same time. And other than that, we also have uh, other groups on campus that have uh, specific expertise and also laboratories. So if you want to do something that is more on the chemistry side, then we uh, collaborate with the laboratory of food chemistry or on microbiology or entomology. So we have lots of uh, facilities around us and people that are, are open uh, for collaboration. Yeah, it, and it was an extremely lively campus. I think that you're quite fortunate to be there. Um, I, the, the, the programs and the research are bar none some of the best in the world. And so it was a, a lot of fun to observe and, and be able to take parts in some aspects of that. You, you being more familiar with what I was involved in than the listeners. So I think that today um, I thought it would be really interesting for the listeners because it's something um, that we're very interested in, um, both of us personally as scientists, but your more, most recent research where you're kind of pairing up um, moving digestibility studies to in-home, um, then additionally thinking about how to complement those with in vitro and of course, I think that I'm I'm not going to be able to have this discussion without kind of also talking about how the entire group, animal nutrition group at Wageningen is really interested in in vitro and how maybe um, our species models that we use for digestibility um, are, are or can be applicable in some situations for dogs and cats. So why don't we start a little bit with um, the in-home uh, movement uh, that you made where you're looking at taking these classical laboratory digestibilities and bringing them in-home. Would you like to uh, describe how you got that started? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, Actually, uh, Wouter Hendricks, the professor over here, uh, started this, I think about uh, 10 years ago, a little bit more, uh, because he had an interest in uh, setting up these types of uh, methodologies. And he started with some students, uh, did some first work, and it was also presented in uh, one of the conferences. And over time, he also got into contact with the industry, with companies that also have an interest in moving away from uh, the kennel, uh, the kennels, uh, which dogs have or uh, uh, are being used to, uh, to do the digestibility type of work. And um, uh, at a certain moment, there came an opportunity to set up a PhD project. So there were more companies willing to invest money to develop the methodology. So together with the University Fund uh, of Wageningen, we set up a project, uh, attracted more companies. So we had a, like, a pool of 10, 12 companies that all chipped in. Then we could hire uh, Evelyn Boss, who is now finishing up her uh, thesis, PhD thesis, and started to work. And uh, so we are doing both uh, digestibility type of work as well as palatability, and then in dogs and in cats. Yeah, I think that this is, um, first of all, I commend you for getting multiple stakeholders together because this is really a methodology that that the entire industry needs. And and one, one thing that we've already discussed with other people on the podcast is really the need for academia and industry to partner to solve solutions. And Wageningen has done that, that really well. So when you were putting the, together the effort 
to support that work? Was was that difficult um, uh, or was it quite easy? Everybody was mutually interested in um, in-home digestibility. Um, it was quite okay. I, I think there were some founding fathers or some uh, companies that were very enthusiastic and really were pushing it. And they were really also helpful in convincing other companies to, to help out. So they have a strong network uh, among each other, uh, of course, and they could also convince the other pet food companies to to contribute uh, because it's a mutual interest for everybody. And as such, you also need to um, yeah, work together to get s- such type of methodology developed and everybody can benefit from it. So actually, the, the companies uh, amongst themselves did most of the work. We also had our own network, but I think in the end, the, the, the companies... Uh, were most convincing to their colleagues and uh, that really helped to get all the money in. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach and, and great to see that collaboration as well um, within the industry. Um, um, there is uh, a little bit of truth to that if an industry takes a hit. So as an example, if, if kibble takes a hit, it affects it can affect all kibble. So it's nice to see everybody um, in different parts of the sector working together. So did you, so Eveline um, largely looked at dog, correct? Dogs and cats, both. And she did do cats. I don't think yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with that work. Um, was it a little bit, I'm going to assume that the cat was a bit more difficult than the dog. And just curious, because one of the things that's really hard is that owners tend to be with their dogs when they defecate. And so, you can you can get your whole sample uh, usually quite effectively, um, and you know it's fresh. How did you how, how how did she translate that into cat and make sure she was getting uh, fresh fecal samples or relatively fresh fecal samples? Yeah, there was a challenge, and I think um, uh, the recruitment was also a bit more uh, difficult because with the uh, dog owners, they are really in in control in terms of what uh, the dogs are eating and when they are probably defecating where they defecate and so on. They can help out a little bit and it is a little bit more easy to uh, collect the feces. Uh, although she also has some issues with the owners that were not able to go into the bushes and try to find the feces of the dog. Um, but apart from that, we had to con- uh, to contact um, cat owners that were having the cats only indoors because when they go outdoors, they might also eat uh, rodents or birds or whatsoever so you cannot really do an accurate digestibility measurement so that already narrowed down the uh, the population of uh, cat owners and sometimes cats are also a bit uh, difficult uh, in, in eating different types of food so it's a little bit more tricky to get uh, the recruitment going on uh, for the uh, for the cat work um, the, the feces collection is uh, more easy you don't have to look for it you know where they are going to defecate so that's a bit more simple but the freshness of the feces is not always guaranteed and it's also not always needed for uh, a digestibility measurements it's only if you want to do like uh, fecal fermentation products that you need fresh feces but it's just like a regular digestibility measurement in which you want to evaluate nitrogen digestibility there's not too much nitrogen going into the environment yeah. So maybe for the listeners too, um, d- it, most of them are in the pet food industry, 
But this is a good opportunity to kind of delineate the difference between when you're collecting a fecal sample to do a simple digestibility versus a fecal sample to look at the bacteria that resides in in the feces, um, the products of fermentation. Maybe for the listeners, describe what the improvement in your understanding of the effects of the diet would be as you add different sample collections um, or analytics to your fecal samples? Um, I'm not sure if I really understand your question. Yeah, because you mentioned, uh, so I was asking about digestibility and indeed, you know, you, you said that for having a fresh fecal sample to do something like nitrogen digestibility isn't an issue, but might be an issue if you were looking at uh, products of fermentation or you were interested in the microbiome, for example. Maybe for the listeners, and, and it, takes, it takes a lot more effort. So the effort it would take to get that kind of sample, but what it might be able to tell companies about their diets if they... If they um, if they invest the money in supporting the staff to collect those or the technologies to collect those and then being able to do additional analytics. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. That's um, indeed interesting because if, if you have fresh fecal uh, uh, samples that you can look into these uh, microbiota or the uh, metabolites of the microbiota that would say something about what is ongoing in the intestinal tract in the large intestine. So it might say something about the protein quality, for example, if you have um, lower digestibility of proteins, you will, you might have more protein fermentation going on in the large intestine, which will give you a different uh, fermentation profile in terms of metabolites, uh, but also in microbiota. Um, you might also have uh, the possibility to collect some uh, proteins that are secreted in the uh, intestinal tract that uh, are coming from the immune system, so something that is related to gut health. And in essence, we don't really understand at this moment how we should relate the microbiota, so specific species that are maybe very much uh, uh, present or are reduced in numbers because of the dietary treatment and also the fermentation profiles to actually gut health. So what is very um, detrimental or maybe uh, beneficial for gut health on the short term or long term, at this moment we don't have a very good idea. So this is still a, a challenge and uh, I forgot to mention uh, with the cats and the collection of uh, non-fresh feces, it will be also difficult of course to evaluate the fecal consistency which is more easy when you have the dogs and the fecal consistency is also often a parameter that uh, companies want to want to have but for the cats it is difficult to uh, to guarantee that yeah logistically and and i'm just curious and for those uh listeners that that haven't haven't um done digestibilities with cats there's another thing that we ran into which was our, we had um, our first colony of cats uh, were actually all Humane Society cats and we conditioned them and did some litter experiments on them. Um, but we couldn't adapt them to a astroturf to urinate and defecate on. So we used non-absorbent litter. But then to do fecal analysis, you have to pick out every single piece of litter off of the piece of uh, feces. So it, it's um, 
for people who are thinking about asking about research, some of this stuff that we have uh, technicians and students do is is extraordinarily laborious um, in nature and slightly un, unpleasant. So did you have to do the same thing? Did you make Abilene pick out all that litter from all those feces before she ran them? Uh, yeah, in part. So what could be removed was removed. It was also very laborious. And we actually also did a compliance uh, manuscript. We're now working on it. And that includes, of course, compliance to the dietary treatment, uh, not giving too, much, too many treats. And also the, the understanding of what confounding factors might do with the estimate of the digestibility. That also includes the, the litter that might be attached to the, uh, to the fecal matter. Oh, interesting. And yeah. So in essence, if you have a dry matter digestibility and you have lots of litter attached to your feces, then you cannot really do an accurate measurement. But if the litter is devoid of any nitrogen, you can do an accurate nitrogen digestibility uh, estimate. And we also use the marker methods. So uh, maybe there's also an important detail to, to mention here. Um, but yeah, Evelyn also tried to quantify what is the amount of litter that is attached to the uh, fecal matter. Um, you are the meanest advisor ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we also had lots of students that were also helping out. So we tried to uh, maybe uh, spread the burden a bit. <laughs> That's an interesting measure, though. Yeah, th- those are so. So dog and cat are uh, extraordinarily different, and I think um, what's really interesting is also that you're looking at variables that might affect digestibility, and and of course, in a laboratory setting, we tend to, um, especially animal scientists, tend to overly uh, control the environment um, and all the experimental parameters. What are you learning about the vari- the variables that can affect digestibility that are animal-specific rather than diet-specific? Yeah, obviously, if you look at dogs, then body size is an important factor. Uh, activity can be an important factor because it's also affecting uh, food intake, and uh, that might relate then to passage rate and defecation frequency and, and so on. Um yeah, so these types of factors uh, are quite important. Uh, and uh, I think if you would do um, uh, a trial within a kennel, I think it's also very important to have these facilities if you want to evaluate specific um, uh, ingredients or yeah, specific research questions that require a certain, a certain level of control um, in, in your study. If you are a bit more close to launching a product uh, to market, then it makes more sense to evaluate maybe in the target population. So you might have different, uh, or you need different facilities uh, for your specific question that you have as a company. Yeah, I think um, we definitely see, and in, in, in you're doing a great job kind of dovetailing into some work that that we mutually love, which is, Really, you know, trying trying to understand the digestibility of ingredients and how they those ingredients then then relate to digestibility of the final diet. Um, so let's maybe let's talk a little bit about those digestibility measures. And because you mentioned, you know, closer, really closer to uh, market, and and I and I totally agree. Um, but what about when when you're um, for example, what would you suggest to companies who are 
have an ingredient supply shortage and have to make a quick similar ingredient change. Um, do and let, let's say there, there's very few digestibility measures on that new ingredient. So maybe maybe a great way to kind of into another realm that you're involved in is they want to start using insect meal. They have a shortage on let's 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 throw out some fish meal and chicken meal in there. And 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 they I think what we see is a lot of companies do a swap. But in this case where you have limited amounts of information on the digestibility of black soldier fly larvae, although I will admit that I think it's growing quite rapidly um, because you do need multiple studies um, um, to kind of contribute to that body of knowledge. But what do they, what do, they do there? So if, if somebody wanted to do fast, rapid development to market with black soldier fly larvae, do they run an in-home do they run a control? Do they run anything at all? What would your recommendations be to the industry? Um, yeah, if you want to understand your your new ingredient, then um, just uh, plain chemical uh, analysis, of course, is helpful. And then uh, you can complement that with uh, in vitro digestion, just to compare the in vitro digestibility with the uh, reference ingredient that you have. Then you already you can have a good idea of the quality of the uh, the new ingredients that you want to incorporate in your diet. You have to be sure that it's safe, of course. Uh, If there are any issues around amino acid composition that you know of, then you might also run an amino acid digestibility analysis with the in vitro method that you have. That's also an option. It's not that common to do, but you can do it. And um, yeah, if you have more time and facilities are available, of course, you can then go into uh, a test with, with a kennel or a category to evaluate your product, but it also takes uh, a bit of more, t- yeah, takes more time to, to organize, to find a lab and so on. But in, in essence, you can do quite some first steps on a short notice using uh, laboratory methods. Yeah, so that, that really kind of dovetails nicely into um, in vitro methods. And I, I uh, got exposed to a lot of um, the nutritional physiologists of Hagenigan look using different in vitro methods. So, and, and across multiple species. So maybe talk about what the, and you also differentiated, you talked about amino acid digestibility separate from other digestibility. So let, let's start there because you and I are really passionate about protein. Um, if they're really concerned about amino acid digestibility, what in vitro uh, approach do you recommend uh, to companies to take a quick look at um, uh, ileal digestibility of the amino acids? Yeah, there has no validated methods. So each method that is out there and published is not validated. So you always are a bit... Uh, um, unsure to what extent your your results are valid, but you can use the in vitro methods that are described in the literature to evaluate your ingredients or foods and also to rank them, for example. And so you have a systematic error there. Um, we have a couple of methods that were developed for pigs that we are also using here in Wageningen and that were further advanced or tailored towards the digestive physiology of dogs uh, in, in Spain, so that's described by uh, Marta Avera. So we have that uh, over here, and then they change the pH, for example, of the gastric phase, the incubation time, uh, according to the uh, digestive physiology of the of the dog. 
So that is something that we are doing. Um, but there are also more advanced uh, methods with that are more dynamic, for example, with the uh, uh, TNO model, where you have like uh, uh, really uh, 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 peristaltic movements in the uh, in the system. Uh, so it's way more dynamic. The collection uh, of the digested part or the undigested part is different. And there are also some drawbacks in how to, in the end, differentiate between the uh, digestible fraction and the undigestible fraction where you're going to do, for example, filtration versus centrifugation. So there are some issues around that. Yeah, we we attempted in some swine experiments to use the, the tip one. And I, I think maybe I would add that it is... Um, it is an incredibly finicky in vitro method that requires a tremendous amount of oversight, an extraordinarily knowledgeable technician, um, because you, you do, like you said, it's dynamic. You, in essence, have a ex vivo um, in vitro system, and it needs to be curated pretty closely or you have issues and need to do reruns um, quickly. So I think that those kinks really need to be um, fixed in, in, in that too, because I remember being on the other side of, and so not in academia, but in industry, uh, it, 15, it had to be 15 years ago, um, at the American Society of Nutrition, they were having a really big symposia, really talking about diaz methods for human nutrition, uh, which we apply to dog and cat. But all the industry people were saying, you can't, you, you can't give me a two-year timeline to screen an ingredient. I need a two-week timeline to screen an ingredient. We have to make decisions really, really quickly. So I think um, for the industry, that kind of culmination of the in vitro methods that become validated, I think, will be uh, tremendously beneficial because of just the timelines and the cost of doing um, in vivo. Um, May I add to that? Yeah. Um, DAFA always uh, running a program. It's called uh, Proteos. And in that program, they are evaluating protein sources for human uh, nutrition. And they are using the pig as a model. So they have ideal digestibility data for different protein sources. Uh, and in that whole project, they are also validating the uh, in vitro InfoGest, I think I InfoGest uh, model. Uh, that simulates human uh, digestive physiology and uh, they try to optimize it so it is validated together with human uh, data. So they have human ileal digestibility data, uh, pig ileal digestibility data, and in vitro uh, digestibility data. So they then can correlate uh, all these three ways of measurement and validate and optimize also the in vitro method. I think that would be also very nice to understand uh, how these methods will look like in in the future because yeah, the, the digestive physiology of a dog uh, and maybe also of a cat will not be uh, that different from a, from a pig and a human. It will not be day and night different. So actually, I think that we can maybe make a, a, a step in improvement of these in vitro methods to get some more close to real data in uh, the upcoming years. So uh, that will be interesting, I think, to follow. Yeah, and you bring up one one really good point, too, that I think you and I think a lot about, but we get caught a lot in pet nutrition where there's a need for species-specific data. Um, and I think 
I think that there's some people who get a bit distracted and think that that means that in every single thing that we do, we need species-specific data. And I think that when it comes to digestion and absorption, um, we see less differences among species. And that's the important thing when we're looking at a digestibility uh, model and cross-application of that data versus looking at how an animal peripherally metabolizes a nutrient or the difference between when in the day or when in the week or when in the year uh, they, they metabolize more or less. Um, and I know that you're really passionate about um, kind of the, the, you probably think a little bit too, well, I know you do a little bit, um, about the implications of kind of the, those diurnal um, rhythms in dogs versus, you know, what are cats? Uh, are they, you know, are they crepuscular in nature? That's certainly what the indication is, but they're they're so highly adaptive. So just because it's, we like to branch off and talk about things, maybe talk a little bit about how you would overlay the nutritional ecology of the dog and cat separately from applying digestibility to things like, um, to species like humans or agricultural animals, because dogs and cats are closer to humans in the fact that they have their free living. So they're, they're a little bit more in control, yet they're in less control usually of the food items they eat versus humans who are in control of the food items they choose to eat. So what are your thoughts on that and how we think about that digestibility data in these two animals that share our lives and, but are different seasonally on daily rhythms um, and frankly on their ability to communicate those to us? Oof, uh, it's quite complex. Um, so if you look into digestive physiology, I think uh, any organism tries to get most out of the diet that is being uh, eaten. Um, so also for the dogs and the cats, they have their limits in terms of how they can digest certain um, uh, parts of the diet. Uh, but they can adapt, as you can say, as you also mentioned, like the, the, the cats, they also change their activity according to when food is available, for example, or when partners are available. And so on, they can do time sharing of a certain neighborhood and, and so on. It's really nice what they are doing. Um, but also in the intestinal tract, they can adapt quite well. And um, so the, if you look into the, the feeding ecology of a cat, yeah, it's a carnivore. But yeah, we already know that they can digest starch quite well. So the starch digestibility of the total tract is uh, over 90%. And uh, I know that Darwin cited uh, um, an observation that um, in one of his uh, books about uh, domestication of animals, and he, he described that somebody observed that uh, cats that were fat table scraps have a small intestine of one third longer and wider than the cats that are living in the woods. So that also shows that the cats can have quite some severe changes in the intestinal tract just to accommodate a, a certain um, food composition that is a bit unnatural, but still they, they can cope with it. And if they are being overloaded with starch, then they would get diarrhea. So we also have clear understanding what the limits are, I think, what you can feed uh, the animals in, in terms of digestion. And so we are not talking about uh, the physiology and metabolism. 
also long-term health implications. But in terms of digestion, we, we know that they can cope quite well with quite extreme types of diets. Yeah. So, so why do you think, because I always think it's quite interesting that um, if I walk into a pet store and I'm and I'm looking for a food and I, I do this quite often. I, I don't know if everyone else does, but I, I like to see what what they they know and maybe what they don't know or what they believe. And so I've often tested that I'm going to switch my cat's diet or my dog's diet, and I'll and I almost always do a kibble kibble exchange. And no one ever asks me anything about my dog or cat, but they're like, well, you know, they're really. Their GI tracts are really sensitive, so you know, take take one food and 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 change it really slowly, or your dog's going to get diarrhea, or your cat's going to get diarrhea. Um, but is that is that really the case? I, I I you know maybe talk about kibble to kibble, um, kibble to wet, kibble to raw, and how you would do those if you were a pet owner or you were advising pet owners to switch to a different format. Yeah, so in our cat facility, we, we also switch diets and um, we also don't observe uh, issues with the rapid switch from one diet to another, so from kibble, kibble, from kibble to kibble, but also not from uh, wet to kibble, for example. So wet being uh, lower in starch uh, and kibble being uh, higher in starch content. And in one of the... the the studies of Eveline, so the dog digestibility study, there was also a, a subset of, of dog owners that were feeding their dogs uh, raw meat type of uh, food. And they were switching to the dry kibble to evaluate the digestibility. And we also did not observe any issues with um, changing from that diet to the kibbles. And also we did not see strange effects in the digestibility values of these dogs. So Apparently, they were well capable, at least these dogs were well capable of, of uh, coping with the, the switch and also digesting it. Yeah, so one thing I, I always wonder about this is, do you think that by using colony dogs and cats who we do tend to do very thoughtful but often changes in diet, you and I are dealing with changes in personnel and, and constantly training, training new and exiting others. So it's, it's a, you know, there's, there's constant change with colony animals. Do you, I, I always wonder about the, and, and I have thoughts given, um, you know, maybe some hermetic challenges that the animals would have with a constantly changing diet. Do, do you think, like, ha, you have a cat, um, do you feed them the same thing every day at exactly the same times? What's, what's, what's your method, um, with Jack that you use in terms of, uh, feeding an approach that you could cross apply? Yeah. J- Jack is being fed, uh, wet food and dry food. He's very food motivated. So we have to make sure that he's not overeating. So, um, uh, I really have to, uh, keep an eye on his body condition. And uh, he gets three meals a day um, in the morning, uh, a bag, a little sachet with uh, wet food in the evening uh, when we are ready with dinner and cleaning up everything. So we are very uh, routine oriented. So we have quite fixed uh, routines in our um, household. And then in the evening before we go to sleep, he also gets a a bit of uh, dry food. 
Uh, that's to make sure he doesn't wake you up at three o'clock in the morning asking yeah. you for food, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that is the idea. But still, he's he, he can be quite active in the night. I'm not sure if he's trying to get us out of the bed, but yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> I, I had a, an externally food motivated cat too, and when he was younger, um, yeah, he he would uh, do things like um, I remember once he ran up the bed. And jumped on my chest, and um, and then ran out, and that was that was enough to get me up. And I got the hint that it was I I was needed for the food provision that I was apparently half an hour late on. But yeah, they can get uh, so there's a lot of managing, and I know that 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 people do this. A lot of owners do this where they're just managing, trying to make sure that that interaction with their dog or cat over these things are are quite timed out. So. Let's let's maybe um, return here because w- you mentioned something earlier, and I'm I'm you got me super fascinated about nutritional ecology. I think I was always like a little bit interested, and you've made me a lot more interested. Um, you somehow have convinced me to uh, look at uh, different types of formats um, that cats would eat from natural kind of prey items all the way to extruded and and wet food. Um, what about their place in the nutritional management of, of owned cats? Um, cause you're very interested in natural prey and, and the behavior needed to consume natural prey, I think is where you're focused. Um, but how does that fit in? We've been talking di- about digestibility and you've already said that the, the cats and dogs switch to different types and formats of food in terms of, um, ensuring they get the most nutrients out of uh, out of their food. We know that changing their food isn't an issue and, and uh, could be of benefit for diet diversity. But what about these roles of we took two hunters and we removed something that they spent a significant proportion of their time budget on in the wild? What are What are your thoughts about First of all, missing that part, but then second of all, just the, the act of consuming those different types of foods. Yeah, regarding the behavior, I think um, it's it's difficult to to imagine how the the dogs and the cats see their uh, lives or the environment and uh, experience their lives. And maybe some cats need to be challenged a little bit more, so they might ha- end up in an apartment having a bit of boring lives. They sleep a lot and so on. Um, there is research also go- ongoing, uh, trying to understand uh, if these animals can also have feelings like depression. If they are not being uh, housed in a very enriched uh, environment. Um, but we also know that, for example, if you play with the cats, they might hunt less. So they have like an innate or uh, um, the, the they want to to do something they it's this fulfilling for them to to do hunting games for example and uh, just it's in their nature so to say well that isn't that that's the reason why cats play well into adulthood though right is one of the conjectures is that that they continue to play because it helps them kind of hone their hunting um, skills to an effect. So maybe, maybe this thing that we're talking about where they're spending all this effort running around and 
with the zoomies and jumping on beds and trying to get us up. Maybe that's all part of the activity of that time. So there has to be activity maybe around food. Maybe it might also relate to the selection for tameness. So there you get a bit more, uh, I call it uh, these, these immature young type of, of animals that, so if you have a young animal, they, young animals really like to play because they are shaping their uh, behavioral repertoires and that they need for later in life. And if you select for tameness, like we have done for dogs, they, if you look at the behavior of dogs, it's a bit disorganized. They are very playful, the adults, and that looks like a wolf puppy type of behavior. So they retain that capacity. And people also say that uh, humans uh, retain these juvenile traits. Uh, they, it really helps them to, to stay creative and they play a lot and, and so on. So we also domesticated ourselves a bit because of uh, uh, the, the benefit of being creative and uh, just play around, um, in, uh, be inno- innovative, um, create new uh, solutions to problems that we encounter and so on. That's also very, very interesting, I think. Um, yeah, for the dogs and the cats, and when it comes to nutrition, uh, I'm not really in favor of, of um, the raw type of, of foods, and I'm not against the dry foods or the wet foods. I think we still need a lot of knowledge and just try to understand what is the, uh, the more like what is the basic nutrition of a dog and cat, and then I go to the ecology of the animals and then try to understand how far are we up away from that specific trait of the nutrition that we observe in, in, in nature that is changed in how we are feeding our dogs and cats in, in home. And yeah, then you come into all different types of questions like uh, not only the nutrient profile or the, the physical structure, the, the stimulation of chewing or the rate of gastric emptying, the importance of structure and stimulating intestinal mortality or all these types of things, uh, the microbiota, fermentation profiles, what is normal to observe in feces, the metabolism, of course, and that is something that you will look into uh, with the cats. Uh, so it's just like trying to advance our understanding of dog and cat nutrition just by yeah, uh, combining some insights from cats and dogs that have more like a, a natural type of, of diet and see how it looks like. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it, it, we look at it as we're focused on food, but then there's also the ability in, you know, I do quite a bit of work in horses and, and I find that horses and, and cats and dogs, sometimes the technologies uh, fly similarly where you're seeing all these technologies that help you kind of manage that feeding experience with your animal and, or in the, in, in the case of cats, you know, make, make things where they have to work harder for their food to kind of mimic that activity that has to be involved in, in obtaining, uh, uh, obtaining the food. So it's not just the food, the format of the food that we can look at, but the ways in which we deliver it and, and whatnot. But the, I, I think, you know, too, your, your thoughts too on, you use the word normal, what is normal, um, and, and maybe how 
diverse normal might be among, especially I think the canine population um, in terms of diversity, maybe a little bit less in cats, but still quite a bit of variability, right? In your opinion? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, there's quite a lot of variation. Uh, so I'm not, not sure what the question is, but uh, there's quite a, a lot of variation in how we are feeding our animals. And many of the animals, they just thrive and they, they become old in a healthy state. And so we are doing a, quite a good job, I think, in that sense. Yeah, I think so too. No, my point was is that it, it, it um, you know, you... It, because of the word normal, I think that some people are looking for us to say, okay, you tell me what's normal for all oh, dogs yeah. and cats. Yeah. Um, and we've already talked about how the dogs and cats are variable in themselves. And and I think, you know, maybe the, the other thing is to consider how variable the owners are um, and how tapped in our dogs and cats are to their owners and, and their own. We talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. But I always um, uh, talk to about people, people desperately want me to give recommendations. And, um, you know, one of the things that I believe very passionately is that dogs and cats make our lives better. Um, And I work to help further support that relationship as you do um, with knowledge acquisition so we can continue to um, help people understand what dogs and cats need to be the best partners to us. Um, in terms of breadths of products on the market, do you think that we're doing a good enough job with the breadth of products for the number of consumers and the number of pets? I no idea. <laughs> <laughs> There are so many different types of products, so it just, I think, mirrors the different um, values that owners have and beliefs that owners have, because then it can only be successful on the market when there is like a consumer that really believes in the things that you are trying to sell and the concepts that you have applied in your product. So I think that is uh, one of the things uh, that is explaining why we have so many products and our own nutrition um, and our understanding of what is beneficial, what is less healthy for us. Uh, there's also lots of developments and new trends and that often translates just in, in the pet foods. It doesn't mean um, that these are also very much healthy for the, for the dogs and the cats, um, but it will give uh, some more breath to the products that we have available in the pet shops. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I, I completely agree with you too. And, um, and I think it is important to understand. I remember as a scientist when I went into industry um, and I really wanted to kind of hammer on people about what was, you know, what they could do better with their nutrition for their dogs and cats without asking any of those questions about their own belief systems and, and, how much time they had to dedicate to this, how much money they had to dedicate to this, um, how they're balancing different parts of their lives uh, with the ownership of pets too. So I think I think taking a human approach and understanding your consumer as well is, is super important. I'm glad that you that you pointed that out. Um, so I, I've been I could keep talking to you forever and ever. You know, I will greatly miss. Um, having the opportunity to walk into an office and chat with you um, 
almost whenever I, I want. Um, but we are going to have you back. I really want to talk to you more about nutritional ecology and uh, feeding behavior. And I think um, I'd really like to actually do that with somebody um, who focuses on feeding behavior in a completely other species to get a nutritional ecology perspective. Maybe we'll pull in one of our comparative um, friends that works largely in the zoo. I think that would be a really interesting concept to bring to bring to pet nutrition. But um, uh, we like to kind of end off the podcast with just a couple um, pieces of advice, I, I think, um, from you, from your perspective. Um, so the first thing is, is if uh, we have pr- a pretty broad, yet largely industrial um, listenership, and if they would like to learn more uh, specifically about whether they should consider um, in vitro or in vivo, um, controlled in-home experiments. Is there a good textbook or a series of review papers as an example that you would say, oh, this is a really great place to start understanding digestibility? Yeah, and I think uh, uh, Mar- Dr. Maria de Godoy from uh, University of Illinois, she wrote a very nice uh, review of uh, methods to evaluate digestibility, together with the colleagues of uh, University of um, Illinois. Uh, so I think that's a very good start. Um, basic descriptions of in vitro methods that are uh, used, uh, but also in vivo assays that, that can be used. Uh, so I think that's a, a very nice paper. Okay. Uh, I think that, yeah, it's always good. It's good to start with a really good review and then dive deeper where there's interest sets. And if any companies are interested in reaching out to you to talk about uh, research, uh, they can contact you. Um, you can find your email online at uh, Wagner University and Research. Yes? Yes, it's available. Yeah. Great. And... Uh, thank you so much, Guido. I already, uh, like I said, miss miss all of you um, greatly. Um, much, very much enjoyed the Netherlands, and uh, I encourage our listeners to follow the group at uh, at uh, Wageningen University and Research. Uh, they are the uh, best animal nutrition group in the world, so there's a good reason to follow them and learn from them. And uh, thank you again, Guido. I can't wait to see you and uh, talk even more science. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the compliments, uh, Kate. And we also miss you. And uh, all the best. And looking forward to our collaborations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.